thankful that um, the Supreme Court gave us permission to worship. They're a few months late, but um, we are still breaking the law and singing praises to the Lord. But we'll continue to do that until he returns. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. We've been going slowly through 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 8 to examine evangelistic prayer in a healthy church. You've been praying for the lost in your homes. I've gotten reports from some of you that you're already hearing of the salvation of some of the people on your list. I know we preach not to worry about results, but the Lord seems to be saving those we're praying for, and we're thankful for that. You've been putting many names on our prayer board, which has now multiplied into two prayer boards in the back. I want to encourage you, a great way to deal with that is take a picture of it, and then you can pray for all of those names. We'll leave those up for a couple of months after this series so you can continue praying for them. You've also been praying for the lost in your small groups. And our student ministries, we're focused there on evangelistic prayer as well. We've been talking about some of the reasons for evangelistic prayer as we walk through this text. The first reason we looked at was that it helps us to help ourselves, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life, godly and dignified in every way. We also said that we engage in evangelistic prayer to please God, that this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Today, I'd like to talk to you about praying evangelistic prayers for another reason, and that is to trust the gospel, to trust the gospel, to trust the efficacy and the power of the message itself. The topic we've been dealing with over the past weeks, evangelistic prayer, by its very theological nature, is steeped in the sovereignty of God. You can't get away from that. The sovereignty of God over salvation. And for that reason, I know this becomes very emotional for some of you. I I understand that because you're faced with the real possibility that everything you've been taught about human free will for all of your life is actually not based in Scripture, but simply in theological tradition. And I know that's difficult. And and I know that that feels hard to have those beliefs that have been fed to us ripped out. But it's ripped out by Scripture. Scripture. And by the truth. And so could I urge you, listen and let Scripture speak for itself. John 1, or James 1 rather, verse 19 says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. What is the context of those two verses? The context is preaching. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. That's the context. And so could I encourage you, if during this series you are wrestling with the sovereignty of God versus human free will, keep wrestling, but keep listening. And let Scripture do its work. Because it is, in fact, a belief in total human free will that led to one of the most destructive and dangerous practices in all of church history, what we now know as the altar call. Going back before this, church historians called a certain event the Second Great Awakening. The First Great Awakening happened in the American colonies in the mid-1700s. This was a time of tens of thousands of people coming to faith in Christ. It was spurred on by the preaching of Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, both of whom believed in the sovereignty of God over salvation, by the way. But after the Revolutionary War at the end of the 18th century was a time of spiritual decline in the newly formed United States of America. In fact, this was a time in which the French philosopher Voltaire claimed that by the early 1800s, the Bible will have, quote, passed into the limbo of forgotten literature. Well, that's not what happened. Instead, by 1815, many Americans considered that they were living in what some called the age of the Bible and the missionary. Because the word of God was just exploding. Church denominations, which at that time were faithful to the biblical gospel, grew at a phenomenal rate in America. From 1800 to 1810, Presbyterians grew from 70,000 to 100,000. Baptists went from 95,000 to 160,000. And the Methodists added 100,000 new members. 
Now, what we need to take note of is that this growth in new souls for the kingdom of Christ wasn't planned. It wasn't manipulated. It wasn't brought about by any human effort. It was a wondrous, spontaneous work of the Holy Spirit in which the current believers in that time attributed to only two human actions, prayer and preaching. That's it, prayer and preaching. Preachers of that day noted and talked about the fact that they were preaching the same truths long before, but all of a sudden there was something new happening. In the Second Great Awakening, the results were vastly different. One of the major results during this time was the founding of many new evangelical organizations. The American Board of Foreign Missions, 1810. The American Bible Society, 1816. The American Tract Society, 1825. New seminaries were started in America with a new unusual focus, and that was to train preachers, not theologians. In fact, they were now moving away from the idea of ivory tower academic study and more trying to train men to stock the pulpits of America with men who could preach expository sermons with skill and dedication. Schools such as Princeton Theological Seminary. You know what the original purpose of the Ivy League schools? It was to train men for ministry. It's a far cry from that now. Well, that's what was happening on the East Coast. But the same thing was happening as this early 1800s revival went west. And one of the big places that it stopped and was very effective was Kentucky. Kentucky was, was the place where Baptist and Presbyterian evangelists were, were just going crazy with preaching the gospel. One evangelist named James McGrady, he was the first to introduce what we now know as the camp meeting. This was designed after the traditional Scottish practice of occasionally having a communion service outdoors. Well, the camp meeting worked wonderfully in the wilderness because church buildings were small and they were scarce, and so you could just set up an outdoor service. Now, when they said camp meeting, it wasn't because it was at Camp Christian Luxury with cabins, indoor plumbing, basketball courts, laser tag, and zip lines. Those are wonderful, and we're going to one of those later this year. No, they were called camp meetings because the families traveled upwards of 100 miles to camp. And they camped and then they studied the word of God all day and into the evening by lantern light. But it was at these camp meetings that now Satan put his sinful stamp on what was happening. There were more and more instances of emotional hysterics and disorder. One church historian, Dr. Ian Murray, he wrote, of the physical phenomena attending the revival, that of falling became the most common. People dropped as if shot dead, and they might lie unable to rise, conscious or unconscious, for an hour or much longer. Some fell who had previously been skeptical of everything. Many, 150, 250, even 800, were recorded as falling during these camp meetings. The potential for disorder increased when the numbers assembling necessitated open-air gatherings and camp meetings. Well, what was causing these excesses? Well, there were two factors we could point to. The first one was the personality of the preacher. Preachers began using their emotion and their personality to, to stir up a crowd. And the second factor was biblical ignorance, that they used the fact that the people listening didn't know their Bibles, and they used it against them. And what many of these preachers discovered was that they could produce so-called results by means of engaging in emotional manipulation to produce these so-called revivals rather than simply preaching the message of the gospel and trusting the Spirit of God to do His mighty work. Now, when the Methodists came into prominence, because they took this and they ran with it, they focused very intently on this. Why? Because theologically, they believed in human free will, in salvation. And so they said, wow, we can pair our techniques with man's free will, and we could save everybody. And the result was that their evangelists began to purposefully harness emotion and the dynamic of large gatherings to manipulate people to an immediate response. And the method was very simple. You would sing sometimes for hours at a time, followed by a highly emotionally charged message that could go on for two or three hours until there was a, a psychological breakdown. And then an emotional appeal, was the, appeal then was then given to perform some sort of physical act 
such as standing up or going forward or spontaneously falling to the ground. And the social psychology of that dynamic was such that if it happened to one, it started happening to another and then to another and to another. The key was repeating this for many days in a row, day after day after day. And the result was that in the last day or two, they saw the biggest so-called results. Because now the sermon was, this is your final hour. This is the final time you may come to Christ. If you say no today, you may never have a chance again. And while there is a grain of truth to that, the appeal was, show by your physical actions that God has saved you. Show by standing, by coming forward, by falling down. By the way, at the very same time, Methodists were the biggest critics of Calvinism, wrongly accusing Calvinists of not caring for the lost or not engaging in evangelism, even though it was the preaching of Calvinists that led to the first great awakening. The act of spontaneously falling to the ground in these camp meetings, it was refined. They, they made it more focused. Now they provided an altar. And they put these altars at the front to demonstrate that you were having a genuine spiritual experience. And this became what we now label the altar call. Well, right about then, a guy by the name of Charles Finney would take this to a whole new level. Before Finney, some of the great preachers in New England who had been witness to the true revival said that the the revival wasn't planned, it wasn't manipulated, it was an act of the Spirit which didn't follow a pattern, didn't follow a system. They believed rightly that the evidence of true spiritual change wasn't some act performed under emotional duress, but it was a change of heart which resulted in a changed life that could be observed, changed habits, a, a faithfulness in the church of Jesus Christ to follow the Lord as part of the true church. But when Finney came along in the mid-1820s, he proclaimed what he called new measures, that these new measures were needed to promote revival. And these included the specific techniques of revival meetings. And God empowered revival in which the Spirit moved through prayer and through proclamation of the truth of the gospel to save many people now was replaced by what some have called revivalism. The revivalism is the use of techniques to produce visible results. No, these new measures of Finney, they weren't really new. They were just refined. They were just the techniques borrowed from the Methodist camp meetings elevated to to a more systematic level. What was very important to this technique was this piece of furniture up front. The bigger, the better. It was an altar or more accurately a bench or a seat at the front of the meeting, and they called it the anxious seat or the anxious bench or the mourner's bench. That if you would desire to be saved, come up here and kneel or, or be seated at this bench, and then you will be saved. And remember, all of this is based on the rejection of the biblical idea that salvation is the singular sovereign work of God. But rather, a person has to be convinced emotionally to exercise free will to come to Christ. In 1831, Charles Finney preached a sermon called, quote, Make yourselves a new heart, unquote. He said, I will show you what is intended in the command of this text. It is that a man should change the governing purpose of his life. A man resolves to be a lawyer, then he directs all his plans and efforts to that object. And that, for the time, is his governing purpose. He directs all his efforts to that object and so has changed his heart. It is apparent that the change now described, affected by the simple volition of the sinner's mind through the influence of motives, is a sufficient change, all that the Bible requires. It is all that is necessary to make a sinner a Christian. What is he denying? He is denying the doctrine of total depravity and he's saying you may convert yourself. Finney wrote, quote, the atonement itself does not secure the salvation of any. When the sinner repents, that state of feeling makes it proper for God to forgive him. In other words, it's possible to stir up the emotions of a crowd and when they feel enough feelings and feel enough sorrow and feel enough something, then God will respond and give salvation. And Finney claimed that his methods guaranteed results and he was right. As a matter of fact, some of the biggest megachurches today build their entire ministry and church services around Finney's methods. But it's never real 
and it never lasts. Oh yeah, there may be large churches built on these practices, built on emotionalism, built on the, the emotion of the preacher, built on the fact that the preacher at the end of every sermon sheds a tear and makes you feel something. I might shed a tear on occasion, but it's because of the truth of God, not because I'm trying to manipulate you into doing something. But it never lasts. You can have a church with 5,000 people. How many of them are actually converted? The manipulative techniques of the Methodist camp meetings and then Finney rode the coattails of the true revival that had happened in the years prior. But now the revivalists were enamored with success. They were enamored with numbers. They were enamored with counting heads, with the appearance of triumph. And so the biblical gospel that Jesus gave, that the Spirit moves when and with whom the Spirit wills to give new birth, this was replaced now, listen carefully, to God now being the reactive force and man being the proactive force. That God responds to you instead of you responding to God. And what was the root of this problem? The root was not trusting the gospel of Christ. Not trusting that God alone could affect salvation. And lest we ever go down that road of trusting man, I want to talk to you this morning about why you can trust the gospel. Let me give you four reasons that you can trust the gospel for your evangelistic prayers, for your efforts. The first reason you can trust the gospel for your evangelistic prayers, there is one God. There is one God. Now, I thought long and hard about what to label this point Look with me at 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God. That's it. Can't improve on the word. I want you to remember the context of evangelistic prayer. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. First of all, then I urge the supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Paul is requesting that prayers be made for all people, all sorts of people, all kinds of people. And he says... For there is one God. This is a shortened version, a shortened assertion of what theologians call the Shema, the hear, O Israel. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We've talked about this before. This isn't just an assertion that there's no other God other than Yahweh. It's It's a cry of loyalty. It's a cry of fidelity. It's a cry of faithfulness. But here, Paul says, for there is one God as a, as a reason for evangelistic prayer. What is he saying here? What he's saying is, if there is one God, then there's only one way of salvation from sin. And if there's only one way of salvation from sin, then all people may have equal access. In Paul's context, he would be specifically speaking of Jews and Gentiles. In fact, he uses the Shema in this way in Romans three twenty nine and 30. He says, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, here it is, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. In other words, to solve the ills of the soul, all of which are rooted in sin, there is only one solution and that is through the one God. There's no tunnel with a mysterious light at the end, at the end of your life, in which all humanity experiences relief and joy at the end of life. That tunnel doesn't exist. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. The fate of all who die outside the singular plan of the one God, the one true God, their fate will be the same as the rich man of Luke 16. The rich man died, and in Hades, that's the place of the dead awaiting judgment, in Hades being in torment, he goes on to say himself, I am in anguish in this flame. Why? Because he's outside the plan of the one God. There's one God, one way of salvation from sin. God will be faced. God will be dealt with. If I could use a double negative, you can't choose to not engage with God. You can't make that choice. Let me put it to you this way. There are 8 billion human beings on planet Earth right now. If you got tired of the top 100 relationships that you have, theoretically, you could abandon them and find 100 more and do this 80 million times. But there's one God. You cannot shop around for another. 
There's one God who is holy, and you are not holy, and the clock is ticking. Because your sinfulness has rendered your life a ticking time bomb. Every day that goes by, you're one step closer to death, one step closer to facing that one true God. Some of my favorite people on earth are young people. I love the kids in our congregation. I love the, the youth, love the little ones. Try to make friends with the babies. About half of them hate me, half of them love me. We're, we're working on it. But young people say, and can I talk to you just for a moment if you're little, if you're a teen? You say in your own mind, I have lots of time to play with my sin and I can think about God later. Two days before Christmas, Yonkers, New York, just a couple of months ago, four teenagers getting ready to graduate from high school, driving down the street, minding their own business and they're run into by a man who's in a high-speed chase with police, ejected all four of these young men from their car. They were killed before they even hit the ground. In the world... Today, 3,000 adolescents will die unexpectedly of either accidents or overdose or disease. No, there's no time to play with sin. The good news is, though, you confess and you ask God for mercy now. What, what, is, the, what is the great question? The great question is, how can I be made right with God? The answer is, ask. Ask. I need forgiveness. I need mercy. And I ask. He's faithful to save, faithful to cleanse, faithful to justify, faithful to make you whole. Isn't it great that there's only one God? That salvation's way has been made and only the true living God is in control of this? Let me tell you what the pagan idolater and the polytheist of the Old Testament had to go through. He had to go through choosing from thousands of gods and trying desperately to find the right combination. We don't have that problem. There's only one God. And because of this, no one can thwart salvation. No one can steal your salvation from you. No one can trick God out of keeping you saved. Jesus said of those who were in Christ in John 10, 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Why? Because there's no one who can. There's no one who can. Trust the gospel because there's one God who has given the gospel. There are no other options. There is only one perfect option. And that is the good news of Jesus Christ. Why can you trust the gospel for your evangelistic prayer, for your evangelistic efforts? There is one God. There's another reason. There is one mediator. There is one mediator. Verse 5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, the author of 1 Timothy in his day, a mediator was, we would might call him a negotiator. A negotiator who helped two parties come to an agreement to make a transaction of some kind. And of course, the two parties here in view by Paul are holy God and unholy mankind. Those are the two parties in negotiation. And the agreement that is reached is a covenant. And so we would expect strong covenantal implications to this idea of mediation, of this being a mediator between God and men. We see this in Hebrews 9.15 that Christ, quote, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred. What is that death? That is the death of Christ. A death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. The mediator has negotiated, as it were, an agreement, a covenant agreement between humanity and God, and it's called the new covenant. The interesting thing, though, is that this covenant is very, very lopsided. It's lopsided in that humanity has all the need and nothing to bring to the negotiating table, and God has no needs and brings everything to the negotiating table. The big question at this negotiation is, what could be done to satisfy the rightful wrath of God against sinful humanity, which deserves the wages of sin, which is death? What can be done? What can be brought? When Christ the mediator came to the negotiating table, what did he bring on my behalf? What did he bring on your behalf? What was the bargaining chip that Christ brought? What was the payment that he offered? 
Jesus said to his disciples at the institution of the Lord's Supper, communion, he said, this cup is the new covenant in what? My blood. That's what he brought to the table. What our mediator brought to to the negotiating table was his very life. His life for ours. Or as we sang earlier, his robes for mine. But the key term here is that there is one mediator. There is a singular means by which humanity may have their sins forgiven, a singular means to be made right with the one true and living God, and he is the man, Jesus Christ. And what Paul does here is he's emphasizing the humanity of Christ, the humanity of Christ in that only a man can stand in place of another man or a woman. Only a human can stand in place of a human. And there is precisely one person who is both God and man and who can stand in the place of each. Now, this isn't a brand new idea, by the way. Paul is writing, at least to many who are familiar with the Old Testament, he's writing to Greek-speaking and Greek-reading people, and the Jews among them would be familiar with the Septuagint. The Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That would be the text they were familiar with. You're familiar with the English Standard Version or the New American Standard. They would be familiar with the Septuagint. And it could be that he's alluding to two very key texts. Isaiah 19.20, you don't have to turn there, but our Bible says, a Savior who will save them. The Septuagint translates and says, a man who will save them. A human being. The context, by the way, is God is promising to save Gentile nations through this man. Numbers 24, verse 7, the Septuagint translation says, a man will come forth from his seed. Verse 17 says, a man will be established out of Israel. And the context is, this is the one who will conquer all the nations. And so the Jew who knew his Bible believed that God was sending a man from heaven, a human being from heaven. Now, if God sends a human being from heaven, there's only one option, that human being must also be God. It was the man, Adam, who led the human race into sin, and therefore it had to be another man who would lead the human race out of sin. The Apostle Paul developed this idea extensively in in Romans 5. I'll just hit some highlights here. Romans 5, verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned, why are you a sinner? Because of Adam. Verse 15 Paul says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. If many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abound for many. Verse 17, he says, for if because of one man's trespass, that's Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And in verse 19, Paul says, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Why is this amazing? Because for millennia, mankind has been trying to redeem himself. And really, if you think about it, from our vantage point, from a human standpoint, there isn't another option. But God has given another option. Mankind has been completely unsuccessful because a sinner can't redeem himself from his own sin. But God the Father sent a Redeemer who is sinless and perfect and whose life was then offered in exchange for ours, one man for another. Jesus himself claimed to be the one mediator. In fact, I, wanna, I just want to hammer this home. Turn with me to John chapter 10. In John chapter 10 Jesus gives some metaphors to describe himself, some word pictures. Verse 3, he says he's the gatekeeper of the sheepfold. That's a word picture. Verse 11, he says he's the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. But I want to focus in for a moment on verse 7. Because he gives a metaphor, which a word picture, which clearly claims exclusivity, that he's the only one. Verse 7. John chapter 10, so Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. I am the door of the sheep. Verse 8, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. What does that mean? 
sheep, the, 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 the thieves and robbers are those who might present another way. But the true sheep, the elect, those that God has chosen, they don't listen to those. They only listen to one. They only go through the one door. Now Jesus is very explicitly and openly saying that he alone is the entryway to salvation. He alone is the door. Verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. To the elect, he presents himself as an open door, as an invitation to come in. By the way, verse 9 is very much covenantal language to the faithful Jew who believed in the coming Messiah. When he says, you shall go in and out, it reminds us of Deuteronomy 28, 6. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. Psalm 121.8 says, The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. What, what does this mean, the, this picture of going in and coming out? It's a picture of a door that's unlocked, of total safety. Some of you sleep with a firearm under your pillow, and I understand that. That's the world we live in. This is a picture of a world where because of Christ, you leave your door unlocked. You leave your windows open. You leave the gates open. It's freedom. In fact, he says that they find pasture. Verse 10, Jesus plainly says what the pasture is. He says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This is a very familiar Old Testament picture. God's true people are often called the sheep of his pasture. Psalm 74, Psalm 79, Psalm 100. God's pasture is the picture used by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 49, to speak of Israel's final restoration, this good pasture coming in and out, safety, provision, help, joy, love, everything you can think of that a perfectly peaceful kingdom would consist of. But how do you find this spiritual safety? How do you find this pasture? How do you become part of that? How are the true sheep forgiven their sins and given entrance now into God's kingdom? How do they go through that door? In one of the great direct statements of the Reformation principle of solus Christus, in Christ alone, the second sentence of verse 9 makes this very clear. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. In fact, in Greek, the phrase by me is in what's called the emphatic position. By me, if anyone enters, he will be saved. It starts with Christ. You're familiar with this, very familiar to us. Jesus said even more directly in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, 11, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. In our text this morning, of course, there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Or as Jesus just said, I am the door. Now, why is this cause for you to trust the gospel for your evangelistic prayers and efforts? Let me illustrate with a, a, a little tidbit from history. Between 1963 and 1976, one of the most popular shows on TV was a show called Let's Make a Deal. And if you're nodding right now, you just proved how old you are, so just kind of keep it down a little bit. But it was hosted by a very entertaining, kind of crazy guy named Monty Hall. The basic premise of the game was that contestants were presented with three different doors. And they had the option to choose one. Only one door would have a prize behind it. Now, our assumption from our basic knowledge of statistics is that the contestant had a one in three chance of picking the correct door and winning the prize. But the way the, the game worked was that the contestant picked one door. It wasn't opened yet. Monty Hall had one of the other two doors opened. And if the prize wasn't behind it, then Monty Hall asked the contestant if he wanted to switch doors. So now it's down to one out of two. Now, our assumption is that there's still now an even chance. Oh, now I've got a 50-50 chance that I'm going to choose the right door. You know what they found? that the majority, almost every contestant, would stick to their original choice. Why? Because they believed they had a 50-50 shot. Statisticians dub this the Monty Hall problem. And it's been proven that there was not a 50-50 chance if you stuck to the same door. There was actually 
a 66% chance that if you switch doors, then you'd win the prize. There was only a 33% chance that if you kept the same door, you would win the prize. I don't know how that works. Statisticians tell me that it does. But you know who else knew this? The creators of the game show. Because they didn't want to give away a lot of stuff. They also knew that everyone instinctively believed that there would be a 50-50 chance of the two doors remaining. And even if the occasional contestant won, he won something like a new car or a vacation. wasn't a big deal. It's all in good fun. Sometimes people won. Sometimes they lost. Most of the time they lost because statistics were against the contestants. Here's a statistic for you. Try to choose any other door for salvation other than Jesus Christ, the door, and you have a 100% chance of losing. Here's a statistic for you. The door of Jesus Christ leads to salvation from sin and eternal life 100% of the time. Every single time. You will not cheat God. You will not beat the odds. You will not be the first human being to find a different door. You will not somehow be the first sinner to talk your way into heaven. You will die and you will face judgment unless you go through the door. So trust the gospel, because there's one mediator. Turn back with me to 1 Timothy 2. Why can you trust the gospel for your evangelistic prayers and your efforts? There is one God, there is one mediator. There's another reason, there is one payment. There is one payment. 1 Timothy 2, verse 6. The man Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom for all. Now, last week we dealt extensively with the concept of all, that in this context, all is speaking of all who will come to faith in Christ. All doesn't mean that God will save every human being. It doesn't mean that God tried to save everyone, but he couldn't. It means that all that Christ died for will be saved. Later in John chapter 10, we were there a moment ago, Jesus offers the gift of his own life. This is his gift. He said in John 10, 17, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. And he says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus didn't just give something that he had. He gave himself. He says here, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom. What is a ransom? There's two major ideas involved with a ransom. The first one is a payment is being made for something that is owed. There's a payment being made. There's money owed. There's a debt owed, so to speak, and that payment is made. But the second idea behind ransom is the result of that payment being made is that now deliverance is affected. Somebody is escaping from something terrible. There's a deliverance from bondage. And so this ransom must be paid. I think there is a huge misconception in the evangelical church, especially in America, that somehow the ransom was paid to Satan. Your sin wasn't a debt to Satan. No, that ransom was owed to God. God is the one who holds the note to your sin. God is the one that you offended. God is the one that must be paid. God is the one who holds the rights to your life. You're rightly condemned, as Romans 3 says. Romans 3 says you were unrighteous, you were worthless, you were not good. Your mouth was full of curses and deceit and venom. You were one who causes ruin and misery and who does not fear God. But payment is offered by the one man who can cover that incredible eternal debt. Jesus himself, he said, this is why I came. This was the ultimate reason for his ministry. Mark 10, 45 says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a what? A ransom for many. If somebody asks you in a very, very short form, can you boil down why did Jesus have to die? Jesus died for God. Jesus died to pay God, to give his life as a ransom for many. By the way, This is important because the death of Christ was a voluntary act of self-sacrifice. It was intentional. It was out of obedience. There's no coercion. Christ wasn't tricked into giving his life. He didn't get to the trial that he endured and say, wait a minute, this isn't how this was supposed to end. In fact, he knew he was going to die. Luke's gospel says at the end of his ministry that Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. Why? So that he might go die. 
It's very important here that it says in Mark 10.45 that he is given as a ransom for many. That little preposition for many is so important because it emphasizes Christ's solidarity with us, his alignment with humanity. Can I put it this way? For many, it, it emphasizes the insteadness of Christ's death for you. That he receives the judgment of God instead of you. He received the judgment of God for you. One payment. And how do we know that payment was sufficient? How do we know the check cleared as it were? Because Christ was raised from the dead. And he lives. Payment made. You can trust the gospel for your evangelistic prayers and efforts. Because there's one God. There's one mediator. There's one payment. Let me give you one more reason you can trust the gospel. There's one testimony. There's one testimony. The man, Jesus Christ, verse 6, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. What is the proper time? Literally in Greek, in God's own time. In his own time. Meaning that now we have the full message, the full revelation of Jesus Christ, the Savior. It's arrived. You have everything you need. The, The full message is here. There is one testimony. There is one message. There's, there's one witness. I want to show you something briefly and then we'll be done here. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In 2 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul is defending his ministry of the gospel. He's defending what he has said. He's defending the message. He's defending his methods. But here in 2 Corinthians 4, he he primarily is defending the gospel. And in verse 1, he rightly calls the gospel ministry a a mercy from God. The minister of the gospel rightly says, this is God's mercy. This is his grace that I get to engage in this work. But very quickly, he goes to his determination to trust the gospel and did not use any manipulation, not use human logic, not use any cunning of any kind. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 2. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. The open statement of the truth. He, he simply proclaims Christ. He gives the truth. And what about those who won't believe? Shouldn't we keep badgering them? Shouldn't we keep hounding them? Shouldn't we keep pushing? Shouldn't we keep prodding them? Shouldn't we intellectually get them in, a, in some sort of hold? And shouldn't we pin them down? Because can't we coerce? Can't we convince with our own emotional appeal? No. Verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In other words, if the hearer does not come to faith... The gospel was veiled to them because they're perishing in their sin anyway. Why is this? Verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And in very simple terms, he reminds the reader what the one true testimony is. In verse 5, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. That's it. Boy, that's a far cry from Charles Finney preaching, make yourself a new heart, isn't it? Trust the gospel. You pray the gospel. You proclaim the gospel. But you can't know someone's heart. You can't forcefully argue somebody into the kingdom. No person will ever stand before God and say, I was going to hell, but this person put me in a, in a chokehold and said, you're going to come to Christ because of my incredible logic. No, every person will stand before God and say, I came to Christ because as John 3 says, the Spirit moved and I was born again. When someone rejects the gospel, don't get mad. Just pray. Ask the Lord to do His work. Or when someone says, I am a Christian, but you're kind of suspicious because their life looks nothing like a Christian's whatsoever. Keep speaking the gospel to them because true Christians love the gospel. If he's a Christian, he'll say, I love the fact that you proclaim the gospel to me every day. If he's not a Christian, he'll say, please stop. Say to the one who claims Christ, I'm glad you're a Christian. I'll see you in church and at Bible study because real Christians love the people of God and love the word of God. 
This is what is so tremendous about evangelistic prayer that you're praying that the lost will hear the gospel and believe the gospel. And this is a powerful, powerful, powerful prayer. Why is that? Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is what? The power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. That's where the power is. Not in your ability to convince. I have watched even in my own life. I have given profound and detailed gospel presentations and watched people walk away from that. I have also stumbled over words so badly that I might have even been a heretic at that moment and seen people come to faith in Christ. Why? Because the Spirit moved. Now, I will say this. I can't stop right there. We trust the gospel. We need not use human psychological or emotional manipulation to argue with them. But could I say this, and I know we're treading on some fine lines here. It doesn't mean we don't plead with them. And it doesn't mean we don't call them to a decision. We don't use emotion to make people do something. We can't do that, but we can plead. And we can beg on behalf of God. We're called to do that. We have two great examples. How about Jesus? Jesus called men to decide. I read it to you earlier. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount ends with a dramatic call to decide. He says, if you believe, you will build your house on the rock. If you refuse to believe, you're building your house on the sand. And he ends that sermon with this dark note of, is that it? That's it. He ends with that call. How about Peter calling men to decide at the end of his very first sermon at Pentecost? The listeners were so convicted that they called out for help. They heard heard this. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We won't tell you to walk forward. We won't tell you to raise a hand. We won't tell you to stand. If you would like to be a Christian right now, stand. We're not going to do that. But I will tell you this, you do need to decide and you do need to repent. The Holy Spirit alone will enable you to do so. But it is an act of the will empowered by God. By the way, even if we did have an altar call and we said, come forward and be saved, if you truly believed, you were saved before you got up. So it's kind of a wasted trip, to be honest with you. The great prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, was 15 years old. And here's how he described his own life. He said, quote, I was upon the brink of hell. I mean, in my own feeling, I was unhappy, I was desponding, I was despair, I dreamed of hell. My life was full of sorrow and wretchedness, believing that I was lost. He was seeking, he was searching, he didn't know how to be saved. He he was trying to walk to his family's church in January of 1850. He was still searching for the way of salvation, and he was walking on Artillery Street in London, and it was during the terrible snowstorm, and he couldn't take it anymore, so he, he ducked into a door, and he happened to run into a little church called the Primitive Methodist Chapel. The little church couldn't even get their preacher there that night because of the terrible storm. The preacher didn't make it, and so there's just a few people there. And so one of the men of the church kind of looks around. Uh, There's nobody here to preach. And so he got up and he took his Bible and he opened it to the text that was supposed to be preached that night. Isaiah 45, 2 And he read, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is none else. And then he stopped because he didn't know what to do. And so he said, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is none else. And he read the verse over and over and over again. Spurgeon writes in his autobiography, Then stopping, he pointed to where I was sitting under the gallery and he said, that young man there looks very miserable. And he shouted, as I think only a primitive Methodist can, look, look, young man, look now. Then I had this vision, not a vision to my eyes, but to my heart. I saw what a Savior Christ was. Now I can never tell you how it was, but I no sooner saw whom I was to believe that I also understood what it was to believe, and I did believe in that one moment. Spurgeon was saved because one guy stood up and read a Bible verse. 
You know what that's called? That's called the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who would believe. Spurgeon wrote, And as the snow fell on my road home from the little house of prayer, I thought every snowflake talked with me and told of the pardon I had found, for I was white as the driven snow. Trust the gospel. I know as you pray for the lost, you think I've been praying for my child for 40 years. As you share the gospel with somebody, you say, you're not listening, you're not hearing me. That's okay. Trust the gospel. It will do its work. It will do its work. It is the power of God for salvation. Our Father, we thank you that the success of the gospel has been guaranteed. We know this because the Lord Jesus Christ said, I will build my church. He promised. He's been doing so for 2,000 years. We even think um, in these past months of this coronavirus crisis where the world calls it a crisis, heaven calls it a revival. So many coming to faith in Christ, so many false believers being driven out of the church, so many true believers being given the courage of their convictions. And so we thank you, Lord, for the move of the Spirit in these past days. I I wonder if historians someday will call this the coronavirus revival. We thank you even in the midst of our own little body here, the many who have come to faith in this past year. We thank you for those that we pray for. And Lord, I know this is asking a lot. But I would pray that every name we have put on those boards would appear before God clean and holy. I pray that every child, every baby, every teenager in our midst, Lord, would stand before you clean. I know that's asking a lot, and I know that's defying the odds, as it were. But we would ask that the gospel would do its work. We would ask you to answer our prayers because we believe Christ would be honored as we cast our crowns before him as we cast our answered prayers as evidence of the glory of the gospel, of the glory of Christ. I know for every family here, there are those for for whom they're burdened, children or parents or family members or friends or neighbors or co-workers who have heard the gospel and yet continue to be recalcitrant, continue to be rebellious. We pray, Lord, that we would trust your sovereign will. We trust you. You and you alone know whom you will pick. And we trust you. We trust that you said to pray, therefore we will pray. We trust that you said to proclaim, therefore we will proclaim. Let your spirit make a great and mighty move. Let revival break out in our land, for that is our only hope. And we pray in Christ Jesus' name, amen.